0: Amen. Amen. Okay, well, welcome, guys. This is the first of what will be six classes on uh, basically the story of the Scriptures. And we are by no means going to be comprehensive in what we're doing here. Um, The aim is to connect you to the Scriptures' most basic themes. And really, they're all going to be laid down. In our lesson today. And then what we'll do is trace those through, I guess you would say, the biggest turning points in the Scriptures. Um, I'll explain exactly how we'll go through in just a little bit. Um, yeah, but like I said, I wanted to prepare you a little bit for what we're going to get into. The, the plan is, after this series of lectures, we want to do another one and talk more about how to read the Bible um, and how to interpret it in a, in a Christological manner, We'll spend maybe four work, four weeks doing that, and then after, we want to circle back around and cover um, some of the historical stuff and, and fill in those missing spaces with dates and times and, and that kind of thing so that it all begins to come together in that way. So we'll see if that structure makes sense as we go, but just so you know for this first time, uh, six weeks to go through the whole Bible. So we're going to be uh, very selective, and this lesson will be Uh, The longest of of all the ones we do, but I want to preface our lesson this morning with a bit about why it's important to understand the story of the scriptures, why we're doing this, what the point of it is, and really, that point is is that stories um, are about meaning. Stories provide us with the sense of identity and belonging. And placement. So, to illustrate that basic claim, um, I want to steal a fictional scenario from philosopher Alastair McIntyre. He urges us to imagine ourselves standing at a bus stop when a stranger comes up to you and says, The name of a common wild duck is Historinicus, Historinicus, Historinicus. Now, the literal information in that statement is clear enough. There's a duck, and that is its name. The problem, however, lies in the meaning of the statement. Why ducks? Why me? Why right now? And so the meaning of this imagined run-in can only be understood by placing it within a broader framework, right? A story that makes it comprehensible. So McIntyre goes on to give us three options. Maybe, he says, he has you mistaken for someone who approached him at the library and asked, do you by chance know the name of uh, the Latin name of a common wild duck? So if that's the case, it's settled. It was merely a case of mistaken identity, and now you have a story to tell over dinner. Or, he says, maybe he's just come from a session with his therapist who's urged him To break down his shyness by talking to strangers. And if that's the case, depending on your temperament, you have a friend uh, to talk to on the way home on the bus. Or lastly, McIntyre says, maybe he's a spy waiting at a pre-arranged rendezvous and the code name simply happens to be Historinicus, Historinicus, Historinicus. And so you see that depending on each story that you place that event in, the meaning changes. You understand it differently. So McIntyre's point is this. A central thesis then begins to emerge. Man, in his actions and practice, as well as in his fictions, is essentially a storytelling animal. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart. Does that make sense? Right? The the story changes the meaning and so on and so forth. Honey, would you pass these to them? Thanks. So, again, the meaning of this fictional encounter depends on the story that it's placed in. And our point here is that It's the same for the entirety of our lives. So the only way to make sense of our identity and our purpose is by placing it within a wider narrative framework, a story that takes all the scattered details of our lives and incorporates them into a unified whole. All right, so if I want to get to know somebody, I don't know anything about them, we've just met you know, I can kind of judge a little bit of who they are based on their clothes and so on and so forth. But if I really want to get to know them, I'm going to ask a very simple question. And it's typically, tell me your story. And even other questions like, what's your family like, or so on and so forth, are all derivatives of that question. What is your story? And in getting to understand someone's story, I can understand who they are. I discover, in discovering their past, um, the events and encounters that have shaped them, I get a better sense of who that person is in the present and where they're going in the future. So, our little equation goes something like this, story shapes meaning, meaning shapes purpose, and purpose shapes action. Therefore, the story that we place ourselves in, right, the the way that we imagine a beginning and middle and ends, not only for ourselves, but for the whole world, matters immensely, right? It's a very, very important um, uh, thing to, to discern. What story am I a part of? And so that really is what this class is all about, telling the story that the scriptures tell, trying to position ourselves in God's story about the beginning, middle, and end of the earth. And so, don't be mistaken, the Scriptures um, do tell a story. Although they are written and composed and edited uh, by different people from vastly different backgrounds, from entirely different cultures um, over a ridiculous amount of time, they do tell a unified story that culminates in Christ. So, Do you guys uh, remember Jesus's words to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Remember, they're walking with Jesus. He had just been crucified. There had been these stories about a resurrection, but they're walking, and they're downcast, and this stranger appears next to them. Turns out it's Christ. They don't know it, Um, but they're down because they don't know the meaning of Jesus's right? That doesn't make sense to them. And, And then he tells them these words. This is Luke 24 verses 25 and 27. He said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So the disciples at least these two on the Emmaus Road, were unable to understand the meaning of Christ's suffering and resurrection because they were ignorant of one central thing, the scriptural story. He says, you guys are foolish. You're you're slow of heart to believe. You don't see what's there. And so it only became coherent to them, Jesus' life, um, within the framework of the scriptures. So now, how to read the Scriptures in a Christological manner, that'll be our subject for our next uh, uh, lecture series. But our intention right now is simply to agree that there is a story. The Bible is not merely a moral handbook. All right, You guys have heard that acronym, basic instructions before leaving earth. All right, that's nice, but it's entirely incomplete. Nor is the Bible an encyclopedia. Uh, containing splendid but ultimately unrelated truths. Instead, it's a coherent story about the Father's purpose for all things in Christ and through the Spirit. Any questions on that? Pretty straightforward. That's part one. And again, I'm sure most of you are familiar with that, right? Maybe that's not new information. Um, But part two is then telling the story that the Scriptures actually tell. The story that you inhabit, remember, shapes reality. So it's not enough to just say, okay, the Bible has a story, because there are many tellings of that biblical story, right? There are many ways that people say, this is what it's all about. Um, I, I won't trace them all or any of them, but, but there are many of them. Some of them are closer to the truth, others, not so much. And so our aim in this class is to the best of our ability, uh, with God's help, is to tell the true story, again, as best as we can discern, and then combat and disarm um, some of the other stories along the way. And I think you'll find that as we go through, in this class in particular, this lesson, um, we're going to make substantial revisions uh, to the story that we presuppose. Um, A lot of different things, at least for me, that changed my view going through this. So, it's my prayer and my hope that by the end of this, um, you'll not only have a more complete understanding of scriptures, but a more complete understanding of who you are in Christ, right? What it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a part of the church, and what that entails for you in your life. So, There's much more to say, um, but we've got to get moving, right? We've got to cover the entire Bible in six weeks. So the storyline will proceed as follows. Today, we're going to be talking about creation and fall, um, and and we'll go into some depth there. Next week, we're going to talk about the Tower of Babel. We're going to skip some of those events in the middle because the Tower of Babel and then the call of Abraham immediately following that is immensely important to the biblical storyline. And then we'll fast forward from Abraham on through his sons and we'll get to the Exodus uh, where the Hebrew people are in Egypt and God delivers them. So we'll look about Exodus and the covenant that God makes with these people um, and, and what it means. And then from there, we'll move on to probably the most pivotal figure in the entire Old Testament, which is King David and his life and the promises that God makes to David. And then on the hills of the Davidic covenant, um, the exile of the nation Israel, right? Them getting pulled away first to Assyria and then to Babylon. And then, as the Old Testament comes to a close with the exile, we'll move to Christ and how he takes all those threads. We're going to lay down so many different um, little mini storylines that you'll find are all going to make their way back to Christ. They're all going to culminate in him and how he brings all of God's promises in the Old Testament to completion, and then inaugurate something new with the church, and then finally, the consummation of our hope as, um, as the church and for the world. So, any questions there um, before we jump into our lesson for today? Okay, so, creation in fall. Now, the story that the scriptures tell it takes shape that is its trajectory is set in the creation of humanity and more specifically in the work that god has given humanity to do and what is this work that god has given humans to do it is quite simply to be rulers kings and queens and priests Over the entire created order. Now, that former vocation um, to be rulers is pretty clear. It's right there in the Genesis 1 text, um, chapter 1, verse 26. Let them rule. All right, that's what God says when He commissions humanity. Let them rule. So, kings and queens, very clear. Now, the latter one, uh, priests, is a little bit more obscure. So, we'll take some time to kind of prove that. And we'll start not by looking at humanity itself, but by the world that God has placed them in. And that world sets the necessary context for their work. And the world that God has placed humans in, as the scripture depicts it, is, as you can see on the first heading there, is as a cosmic temple. A cosmic temple. Now, On a cursory reading, that seems to be reading into the text, right? There's no mention of temple, there's no talk of priests, and so um, very clearly it could seem, well, that's reading into it, but all this becomes crystal clear when we start reading the Genesis uh, creation account against the backdrop of the rest of the Scripture, right? So it's kind of murky what's going on on your first reading, but then Let's say you get through the entire Old Testament and then now you have all this information about how the story develops and then you go back to the beginning and read chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis all over again and you read them in a new, entirely different light, right? Almost like a, a mystery novel. Where there's, you, you can't really make sense of it until it's all complete. And that's kind of what's going on in Genesis 1 through 3. First reading, it's hard to see, but you put it in the context of the entire Scripture and it's abundantly clear of what's going on especially when we start to consider the tabernacle and the temple. So, let's look at that first heading, the Garden of Eden as a temple. And I love this. This is so exciting. It never ceases to, to, to I don't know, just to excite me. So, the first clue that creation in general and the Garden of Eden in particular is a temple is that Later on in the Bible, the tabernacle's construction mirrors the creation narrative. Now are we more or less familiar with what the tabernacle is? right? Um, the tabernacle, remember, after God brought the people of Egypt or the people of uh, Israel out of Egypt, he enters into covenant with them, and part of the covenant is that he comes to dwell with them, right? His presence comes near and his presence comes near, not in just some you know weird, magical way, but in the tabernacle. So he gives them all these vast instructions about how to build a house for him to dwell in. And it's interesting, the, the narrative of the Exodus is just a little bit longer than the actual instructions about the tabernacle. There's all these elaborate details about building God's home. And so our first clue about the meaning of Eden comes when we read the construction of the tabernacle together with the creation narrative. And where they both find similarity is that the creation narrative and the construction of the tabernacle are structured around a series of seven speech acts. So, if you read through Genesis 1, you'll find that there are seven times where the scripture says, God said. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, verse 6, then 9, then 14, 20, 24, and 26, each time. And God said, God said, let there be light. God said this, that, the other, right? Seven times. And then when you get to the tabernacle in Exodus 25 and further on, you find a very similar statement. This time, not, and God said, but the Lord said. Exodus 25, 1, 30, 11, 17, 22, 34, 31, 1, and 31, 12. That's all in the paper before you. So, okay, it might not seem like much initially. Creation, seven speech acts, the tabernacle, seven series of instructions. Okay, maybe suggestive, but is there anything more to it? Well, at the end of the creation account, it says, not at the end end, but toward the end, it says, Genesis one thirty one: God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now listen for the similarities. The tabernacle has just been completed. Exodus 39, 43 says this, And Moses examined all the work, and behold, they had done it, just as the Lord had commanded. This they had done, so Moses blessed them. Now, it says examined there, but if you look that passage up in your Bibles, there'll be a little footnote, and it'll say saw. So Genesis 1, 31, God saw all that he had made. Exodus 39, 43, Moses saw all the work, and then Genesis 31, behold, Exodus 39, behold, and then, of course, God blesses humanity. There's a blessing here. So there's a lot of strange similarities going on between the construction of the tabernacle and the creation of the world. Again, maybe it's not that suggestive, suggestive, but not knockdown proof. But I want to add a lot more to that. On these own, these proofs maybe aren't so convincing, but taken together, I think it's a pretty undeniable case. After the, uh, after the man and the woman eat the forbidden fruit, we're told in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, um, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So, remember, we're trying to say that the garden is a temple. And here, Genesis 3.8 tells us that the Lord's presence, that he's walking in the garden. Now, it's a metaphor, again, that signifies his presence. God, Jesus is not incarnate. God is not material. And it says he's walking in the cool of the day, literally in the Hebrew, in the spirit of the day, in the wind of the day. So you have God's presence there in the garden, but it's depicted as him walking in the garden. And the word that's used in the Hebrew is mithalek. And again, it just means to go or to come or to walk. Now, the same word is used to describe God's presence in the tabernacle. Leviticus chapter 6, verses chapter 26, rather, verses 11 and 12. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you in, in the form of the tabernacle, and my soul will not reject you. I will also, listen, walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. Deuteronomy 23:14, the very same language. The Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you. So, God's presence in the tabernacle is depicted as him walking among the people. God's presence in the Garden of Eden is depicted as him walking among the man and the woman. So at the very least, at the very least, we can say that the Garden is depicted as a holy space, right? The place where the divine presence dwells. And that makes sense because in the Bible, and really in all of ancient culture, holy spaces were protected spaces, right? Right? So if we could transport ourselves back to ancient Israel, we couldn't just walk into the Holy of Holies. Either the priest would have killed us or the Lord would have struck us down. You guys remember poor Uzzah from 1 Samuel, right? Where the he's carrying the ark and he stumbles and he puts his hand on it and he touches the place where God's presence dwells and he's dead. It's the same kind of thing. A holy space is protected space. So what happens to Adam and Eve after... They disobey and eat the forbidden fruit. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24 tells us So he drove the man out at the east of the Garden of Eden. He stationed the cherubim with the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So he expels the man and the woman, and then he puts two cherubim, these hybrid angel creatures at the entrance of the garden with the flaming sword to make sure that no one can enter back in. Our mind should be thinking, holy space, right? Protected space, God's presence. Now, any guesses on where the cherubim show up next in the biblical narrative? They disappear for a while. In the tabernacle, exactly. Exodus twenty-five, eighteen: You shall make two cherubs of cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. The mercy seat is a symbolic throne for God because there's no idol in the temple. And there are these two cherubs, cherubim rather, um, who are something of throne room guardians. So we have them in uh, the Garden of Eden. We have them in the tabernacle. And then, as you can see on the screen, they show up again. The third temple that Ezekiel prophesies, in Ezekiel 48, verse 18, he gives instructions on what to do. He says, it was carved with cherubim and palm trees, and a palm tree was between cherub and cherub. Now, if that isn't a direct allusion, I mean more than allusion to the Garden of Eden, I don't know what is, right? You have two cherubs, and what's between them? A tree. It's the Garden of Eden, right? So you guys are you're getting the picture. I, there's a lot of just it's boring information, but I want to show you what's going on there. So, and and really, there's more to say. More more points that connect Eden uh, to the tabernacle and to the to the temple. One of them being, Ezekiel tells us that Eden was on a mountain. The tabernacle, Exodus tells us, um, at least originally, was on a mountain. Uh, the temple was built on a mountain. The Genesis account tells us that a river flew, uh, came out of the um, Garden of Eden. So you picture a mountain and then a garden on top of the mountain and then a river flowing out from the garden. And then that river goes out and spreads to the entire earth, right? It spreads into the four main rivers and essentially waters the whole earth. Later on in Ezekiel, that same prophecy about the temple, he pictures the temple with a river flowing from it. It's at first a little trickle, and then it grows and it grows and it grows until it spreads to fill the whole earth, and it waters the dry and barren land. So you get in the biblical author's imagination, Eden is the first temple. Right? That's where God's presence dwelt. That's where he met with man. That's where, um, well, where, where worship was. So that leads us to our next kind of um, uh, area of investigation and where we can pick up a little speed now. is, let me see what time, yeah, we're going to pick it up here. So God then takes the man and the woman, and what does he do? He uh, places them, Genesis 2.15, he places them in the garden. Well, at least the man first before Eve is made. And they're given a specific duty in the garden. That's to cultivate and keep it. Your Bible's might be translated to serve and to guard, or to tend and to keep. It it, it kind of can be translated various ways. I don't have it up here, but it's on your paper. I'd encourage you to look at those scriptures that are there. Um, Those words, cultivate and keep, in the Hebrew, when they're used together, the interesting fact is that they're used only in relation to the priest's work. So, priests in the temple, what was their job? It was to cultivate or to serve and to keep the temple. That was their job. That's why they were placed there. So, we get this picture then, Eden as a temple or maybe the Holy of Holies, and humanity placed within that temple as priests to serve there. I want to back up actually just a little bit. Genesis two seventeen or 2.7 kind of gives us a little clue in this direction. It says, Then the Lord formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So, man is formed from the dust and the divine breath. And it indicates his earthly and his heavenly origins. Within his person, man is a union of the two realms. Uh, Humans are mediators. They're not entirely um, earthly like the animals, nor are they entirely heavenly, like the angels, right? They're mediators. They're a link between the two realms. I like the way one uh, commentator said, he said that humans are amphibious. We can kind of go back and forth from the physical and the spiritual. We hold the two together within us. And so there's an indication of the priestly role of humanity, right? Priests are mediators between God and man, between man and God. Here we have, even just within his construction, man is this amphibious being, right? And if you guys can remember back to um, our sermon on the second commandment, no idols, right? I spent some time talking about how humans are an idol or or the living idol, right? That's why God calls us not to have any idols. Anyway, you can go back to that message and, and find that. So, the human vocation begins to emerge, at least a little bit. And it's worship. That's the first thing we know about humanity. God puts them in a temple and he puts them there to worship. Humans are to care for the sacred space, the temple, as the as the temple where God's presence dwell. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and stop here. Uh, if there's any questions, we'll address them. If not, we'll keep it going. So any questions? Pretty straightforward, right? Well, on the same page? Mike. There sure is. Uh, would you like to the I are you have a suggestion? Yes. Yeah, and that was short that was right after the giving of the yeah, right after the giving of the, yeah, right the, giving of the 10 commandments and before the instructions of the tabernacle. Yeah, so there is a, a definite fall there, and that when we get to that in a couple of weeks, we'll spend a lot of time talking about Israel's idolatry there. Yeah. So, um, Eden is a temple. Humans are priests in the temple. Original vocation. Yeah? All right. So then the next one, we don't need to spend too much time on this because it's rather clear. Humans are depicted as priests but that's only one half of the picture. They're also rulers. Um, This is Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, on the screen, on your papers. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds, the cattle, the earth, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Right? So humanity's creation in the image of God, is somehow connected to their vocation. Let them rule. So, in other words, ruling, being given dominion over the created order, is part of what it means to be created in God's image. A biblical scholar, Stephen Dempster, in his book, Dominion and Dynasty, says, the terms image and likeness stress the unique relationship humanity has to its creator. And they also indicate the exalted regal role humanity plays in its natural environment. The male and female, as king and queen of creation, are to exercise rule over their dominion. So the creation narrative advances, it advances, and it's getting greater and greater as it goes until finally, at the culmination, God creates humans, man and woman, and He gives them this commission to rule over the world that he's made. Now, a a, a beautiful reflection of this, and somehow I forgot to include it, is Psalm 8, um, verses 5 and 8. I'll read them to you. It says, And you crown him, speaking of man, with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. So, David, reflecting upon what it means to be a human, exclaims, you've crowned him with glory and majesty, and you make him rule over the works of your hands. So, humanity's uh, commission to rule has also been called the dominion mandate, and it's interpreted essentially as culture-making. So what does it mean for us to rule? Well, it means for us to to make human culture. As rulers, humans are to take the world's hidden potentials and to bring them to fulfillment. Humans turn mere grain into bread. They turn grapes into wine. They turn trees, they fell them and uh, turn them into homes. They take raw materials and they turn them into tools and instruments and so on and so forth. In other words, what are humans doing when they're ruling and and, and they're multiplying and subduing the earth? They're making culture. They're doing what humans always do. And even though there's a fall, that doesn't stop, right? Right after the fall, Genesis 4, Cain gets expelled after he gets pushed further from Eden after he kills his brother Abel. But then what does he go do? He builds a city. And then we get all this information about humanity making instruments and Smelting iron and building these different things, they're doing what they were originally supposed to do, but just under the conditions of the fall. So, humans are created not to dominate the world, but to glorify it, to take its hidden potentials and cultivate them, to bring them to fulfillment. You could say, right, to build a civilization. That's what humans are put on the earth to do. Now, I want to take what we've learned humanity as priests, humanity as rulers, and put the two together and see if we can't get a clear picture about the fullness of what we were created for. So let's do that, right? Take human priesthood in the garden and take human rulership to which they were to send over the world and And put the two together. I think the picture... Oh, there it is. I think the picture that you get um, is something like what G.K. Bill talks about here. He says, Because Adam and Eve were to subdue and rule over all the earth, it's plausible, he says, to suggest that they were to extend the geographical boundaries of the Garden of Eden until... uh, uh, Rather... Of the garden until Eden covered the whole earth. So he's putting two and two together, right? Eden is where God's presence dwells. But then we're also given this commission to go out, to subdue the earth. And so he puts the two together and says, Maybe this is a plausible reading. Humans were to extend the borders of Eden till it covered the whole earth, right? Remember, Eden is a place. It's it's its own region. The garden is in Eden. And outside of Eden, there's, we're told, these other lands where there's other different things. And so humanity is supposed to go into all the world and multiply it. So maybe, maybe that's it. And I kind of have a conviction that it is when you put two and two together. It seems, in my estimation, that the human vocation is to turn the entire earth into the garden. The earth's resources are harnessed and transformed. And not merely for the sake of transformation, but for worship. Right. So humans are to go out and to, to transform the world, but they're to bring that as priests back home for worship. Now, I think the quintessential example here is Holy Communion. Right. Have you ever noticed this? Actually, Aaron pointed out to me, and I think it was 100% right. We don't eat raw, uncultivated grain, right? You just don't munch on it. Communion, it's gone through a process. It's been grinded. It's been uh, uh, mixed, and so on and so forth, and then you get a loaf. There's human work involved, and then you have a loaf. We don't just hand you uh, uh, some grapes for communion. It's, well, grape juice, but wine, biblically, right? It's pressed. It's fermented. It's whatever. It goes through its process of human cultivation. And then what do, we take, what do we do? We take our cultural products, bread and wine, and we return them back to the Lord in worship, in the Lord's Supper. That's essentially, think about it, that's essentially the picture of humanity. God says, go cultivate the earth, go, go subdue it, harness its resources, and then implicitly as priests, we're supposed to bring that back to the Lord, to bring it to him. Um, so, The picture presented to us of both humanity and the earth is one of development. You know, we've heard this a lot, and I just don't think it's right, that things were perfect. There's nowhere in the Bible that says in Genesis 1 it was perfect. It was very good, but not perfect. I'll get to this more, but perfect implies perfect. How can there be a fall when things are perfect? Perfect implies no change. Perfect implies... Well, perfect. It's reached its perfect state. There's nothing to do. I don't think that's the picture we get in Genesis. I think the garden, the text leads us to conclude, is as it should be, right? The garden's a model of the way things should be, but the wider world is not. It remains to be cultivated. There's this whole wild, natural world that needs to be tamed. It needs to be harnessed. Humanity needs to take dominion over it. So God plants his garden, and humanity's commission is to extend the garden till the entire world becomes this garden temple. So let me read you another quote, um, just so you know I'm not making this up. This is Peter Lightheart, um, I think the best American theologian, one of them at least. He says, to sum up, we've got to put two things together here. On the one hand, God gives Adam and Eve the garden as a model for the world, Man's purpose is to transform creation into a sanctuary, or to say the same thing, transform creation into God's garden city. History is the and I see if I get this right, the gardenification, gardenification of creation, or the identification of creation. That's what he's saying. That's the purpose. There is to take the garden and bring the whole world um, under its domain, or to identify the entire world. So I know that might be new, right? And it might be challenge a little bit the narrative that we've had. Um, but I think as we go on, and I kind of add a little bit more to this, I think it'll begin to make uh, a little bit more sense. Any question on that before we move forward? Anything that was unclear? Maybe a little more clarification that we might need. I see furrowed brows and squinting eyes. I don't know. I mean, if there's questions, you can ask me later then. Okay. Now, what I want to do now is kind of try to advance our narrative here by considering the purpose of the two trees. You guys ever wondered what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life are all about? Why are they there in the garden? What's the purpose of these two trees? Obviously, they're very important. Let's read a little bit of the text. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, um, reads as follows. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So the man and the woman had available for their pleasure every tree in the garden, including the tree of life. There's no notion that that tree was forbidden. And it shows up at the end of the Bible, right? It's there for the healing of the nations, and it bears uh, 12 different fruits and so on and so forth. Um, So they're able to eat it except one tree, right? The tree of knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was forbidden. And should they eat it, the Lord says, on that day they would die. And so naturally, this has provoked many questions, and chief among them is just, why? Why do this, right? Why, why even give an opportunity for them to fail? What's the purpose? Now, in the narrative of the perfect genesis, right, everything's great, you kinda, it doesn't make sense. If humanity's already perfect, they don't need to be tested. They're perfect. Why, why? What's the point of that? It doesn't serve a purpose. So anyway, in attempting to try and answer that question, it would lead us down a lot of philosophical and theological roads, uh, free will, the origin of evil, and etc. That all lies down that way. We don't want to go that way. For our purposes here, we want to kind of sidestep those questions and consider the tree of knowledge from another angle, and that is in relation to humanity's vocation, particularly what it means for humanity to be rulers, right? Uh, The human race was created to be a royal priesthood upon the earth, imaging its creator by taking dominion over the world and extending the boundaries of the garden. And in that context, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil comes into its own. Um, we're going to fast forward here. The serpent has tempted Eve. This is right before she's about to take and eat. Genesis 3.6 says this. Um, it's on your papers as well. It says, When the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and listen to this, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So, crucial to the tree's purpose, whatever it is, is that it was desirable to make one wise. In other words, the knowledge of good and evil is the essential component for wisdom. In fact, the knowledge of good and evil is wisdom. And so this is confirmed, right, as the scriptural narrative progresses. Do you guys remember um, after King David died and his son Solomon took the throne in 1 Kings chapter 3? Do you remember what his request was when God appeared to him? He asked him, ask anything of me and I'll give it to you a blank check, right? He asked for wisdom. Let's let's read that passage. 1 Kings 3, verses 7 through 9. Solomon says, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of my father David, yet I'm but a little child. He's a grown man almost at this point. I do not know how to go out or to come in. That's what rulers did. You find in the Bible, going out and coming in, that's what leaders do. They go out and come in. I don't know what it means, but that's what It refers to, he says, your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people. Listen, to discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. So Solomon asks, as we've said for wisdom, or as he says here, an understanding heart, but for what purpose? He says that he might be able to discern good and evil. So the wisest man's ability or the wisest man's wisdom consisted in his ability to search search out the good and the evil in a world of ambiguities and complexities, right? Immediately after the story, what happens? The two uh, mothers or the two uh, widows the Bible frame is a little more unflattering than that, but one of, their, one of them falls asleep on their child and on their baby and kills it. Um, and so she steals the baby of the other one and says it's hers and puts the other one in its place. Anyway, they come to Solomon. Solomon is able to judge between good and evil in this situation. It says that his wisdom spread throughout all the land. That's what wisdom is. In a world of complexity to say, no, this is good, this is bad. Now, what does he need his wisdom for? He says for a very specific purpose to judge your people. As a king, he needs to have wisdom. As a king, he needs to know what is good and what is evil, and how to navigate those. Think about the uh, uh, the proverbs, mostly a collection of Solomon's uh, uh, his wisdom, little sayings, snippets here and there. The first um, eight chapters of Proverbs are from father to son, right? It's all about his raising his sons in wisdom. Well, what were his sons going to become? Well, at least one of them was going to become king. The others were going to see positions in authority over the kingdom. So they need to learn wisdom so they can do their job well, right? And if you read the Proverbs, this just oozes out everywhere. The knowledge of good and evil and wisdom. So Solomon needs to know good and evil, because that's essential to his calling as the king. But he doesn't have it. So you might say, what Solomon is asking for when he makes this request is to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So let's go back to the garden. What is the knowledge of good and evil for? We've already spent all our time on this. For wisdom. What did Eve find desirable in the tree? Well, it was desirable to make one wise. And what is wisdom for? Ruling. Now, I think we can make some judgment about the purpose of the tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented humanity's royal vocation. Humans were created to rule, but to rule, they needed wisdom. They needed wisdom to do their job. They needed the knowledge of good and evil. Thus, the man and the woman, to put it simply, as they're portrayed in the garden, are immature. They're not fully developed. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39. Moses, speaking of little children, says this, Moreover, your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your sons, listen, who this day have no knowledge of good or evil, shall enter there, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. So little ones, by definition, lack the knowledge of good and evil. All right? they, they don't know, and that's why we're typically more patient with them than we are with an adult. They don't know better. They don't know good and evil. They haven't discerned it yet. And so this leads us to conclude that although humanity was forbidden to eat from the tree of knowledge, and I want to be modest here, it seems though, right, that God would have allowed them at some point in time. It was essential to their vocation. If they were to rule, they needed wisdom, and they needed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So once again, we get a picture, not of one where humanity is perfect, established in complete maturity, but just the opposite. Adam is a man-child. Or, in a bit more flattering terms, he's a prince. His destiny is to become king, but he's got to mature into it. He's got to learn the knowledge of good and evil as he goes. But for the time being, he wasn't allowed to. God says no. The Lord was teaching the man and the woman a very important lesson, one that they failed and one that we'll come back to in a minute. Here I want to change gears. Again, we'll come back to that. I want to change gears and talk about the serpent. I think in this the way we've been framing things, the uh, appearance of the serpent begins to make more sense. Again, humanity um, is presented to us in the creation narrative um, as good, indeed very good, but immature, right? They're childlike. So the human race needs to mature. Until that time comes, until they reach their maturity, they need guardians and teachers to bring them to adulthood, and here are the heavenly beings—that is, the principalities and powers, the archangels and the angels and the spiritual authorities—enter the picture. Now, I think this is implicit in the Genesis account, but it is explicit in the New Testament. Um, I preached on this a long time ago. It's Genesis or Galatians chapter four, verse one five. Listen to how the Apostle Paul talks about human history. He says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from the slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, that's humanity, in particular the church, while we were children, so he says we're in a state of childhood, were held in bondage, Under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So here the Apostle Paul compares the human race to a child that is heir to a vast estate. But until the child reaches majority, a sufficient age to bear responsibility, He says it's under guardians and managers who train and who discipline that child, bringing them to maturity. That way, then when they get their inheritance, they don't squander it, right? They can actually carry it out, and they can uh, carry the the heritage forward. And he says that's the position of the human race. Till humanity reaches its maturity, until it's ready to be handed the keys to the kingdom, it's under the tutelage and care of spiritual powers, or as the apostle calls them, the elemental things. He says we were under bondage to the elemental things until, until uh, well, until Christ came. So the process was obviously derailed by sin, right? Humans would have matured maybe in a different way. It looks differently because of sin, yet nevertheless the process remained uh, the same the whole time. And when Christ shows up on the scene, he brings that process to completion. In him, the human race is removed from the tutelage of the elemental things and brought under the direct care of the Father. And those who confess the Father become his sons and daughters. And again, I don't have it up here, but I'll read it for you. Notice how Paul's narrative ends. I do have it up here, verses 6 and 7. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So there it is, right? There's the narrative that I've been kind of laying out. Christ restores the human race, in particular the church, to its status as sons, and if sons, then also heirs. Humanity is reinstalled as rulers over the cosmos. And with that understanding, Let's return to the creation narrative. Who is the serpent? Is he an intruder? Well, not necessarily. It seems rather that he is one of these guardians that was set over the human race. He was one of those, possibly the chief one, who was given charge over the world until the human race should mature and claim its destiny. Does anybody read C.S. Lewis's novels? Uh, Paralandria, it's a, it's a space novel, it's all based on this understanding. It comes from the Church Father, Irenaeus, and others. Um, C.S. Lewis internalized this whole thing, and his novel, Paralandria, is based on this. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating story of, basically, um, of, of what we're talking about here, uh, without going into too much detail. So, the picture here is, humans are not fully mature, God intends for them to mature, but until they do, they're under guardians and managers, particularly the spiritual beings, right? Um, And this is reflected later on in the Old Testament as well, right? There's there's a, a spiritual being over Greece and Daniel. There's a spiritual being over Persia, right? They're called principalities and powers, right? They have jurisdiction over these areas, over the world. That's the picture that the biblical story gives us. So, Gerald Heestand, I can provide you guys with this paper. It's a fascinating paper, um, and I'm drawing a lot from what he says in it. He he puts it this way. The devil, much like the steward of a child king, is granted only temporary leadership of the earth until such a time as the heir can assume the full responsibility of his throne. So again, we want to be modest about the serpent's pre-fall role, But it seems well within the bounds of Scripture to assert that he was indeed a ruler, indeed, uh, or or very possibly the chief ruler um, of the earth until its true Lord's humanity be brought to maturity. And he may have very very well had a part in that process of maturity. It may have been his job to help bring humanity to maturity. Uh, We'll come back to that in a minute. I mentioned Irenaeus. Um, uh, he's writing sometime in the second century. So, I think he's one generation or two generations away from John. So, John the Apostle was in Ephesus. He raised up Polycarp, um, and Polycarp talks about John in his writings. And um, Irenaeus was, uh, I think I'm not wrong here, he was a disciple of Polycarp. So, he's just right there from the apostles. He he says this. This is the way he kind of frames the story. Therefore, having made uh, the man Lord of the earth and of everything that is in it, God secretly appointed him as Lord over those angels who were servants in it. They, the angels, however, were in their full development while the Lord, that is the man, was very little for he was an infant and it was necessary for him to reach full development by growing. But the man was a little one and his discretion still under development, underdeveloped, rather, uh, wherefore also he was easily misled by the deceiver. And so what makes the man and the woman so susceptible to the serpent's schemes? Well they were infants, they were immature and unwise, and so with just a little scheming the serpent deceives them to undermine and turn their backs on everything that God had given them. That sounds like something a child would do, doesn't it? They're deceived. And so, what is the serpent up to in the garden? What's his business there? I think now his motives come into clearer view. So if we hold the serpent and the angel indwelling the serpent was a chief guardian over the world, what is he doing enticing humans to disobey? What's he up to there? He's seeking, quite obviously, to keep them from their destiny as rulers of creation. It was in his keeping the earth, and he sought to keep it from humanity. And so this might lead us to make revisions of how we understand the serpent, the devil, the ancient dragon, as John the Revelator calls him. So his rebellion... It's not primarily against God, but humanity. Or rather, it's not pride that caused him to defect from his role, but envy. He wanted for himself what God had promised to the human race. And I think the idea, to begin with, that the serpent would uh, be able to usurp God's position as the throne and creator of all things is kind of ludicrous in itself. The serpent's a liar. He's the father of liars, but he's not an idiot. The notion that he might ascend to the throne and literally overcome God and take the throne is impossible. And he would have known that. In fact, that narrative comes from, uh, you guys familiar with John Milton, Paradise Lost? That's where it comes from. He was the one who popularized that narrative of the devil wanting the son's throne where I think the more ancient understanding is that he didn't really want God's throne. He knew he couldn't have it. He wanted man's throne. He wanted what we had. And so our telling of the story is corroborated in Jesus' temptation. Matthew chapter 4, verses 8-10, through 10, you guys know the story. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So for this to be a legitimate temptation, right? You remember what happens after this? Jesus is so weak that the angels have to come and minister to him. For this to be a legitimate temptation, the devil's claim, or the devil's, uh, yeah, it has to be true, right? He whispers to Jesus, All these things I will give to you if, because in reality all these things, The kingdoms of the world and their glory belong to him, right? He's not just making this up. He owns, has dominion over the earth. Where does that come from? Well, he took them. He's a usurper. He took what was humanity's for himself. He duped humanity from its destiny as the world's rightful rulers and took it for himself. And we're getting the end here, guys. We'll finish up within 10 minutes. And thus, the central drama of the Scriptures is the ongoing struggle between the serpent and the human race. The story is not primarily about God and the devil, about these two equal and opposite forces, right? We know who's going to win that battle. The story is about the devil and the human race. It's a struggle between the serpent and the, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And again, that's exactly how uh, the Genesis narrative depicts things. Genesis 3.15, God speaking to the serpent after the dust is settled, after their rebellion, he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, listen, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and I seem to have cut off the other part, and you shall bruise him on the hill, or something along those lines, right? So how is that central drama played out. The battle is between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, we get out of the garden. What happens? Cain and Abel. We have the seed of the woman, Abel, the seed of the serpent, Cain. Remember what Jesus said about the devil in John 8? He's a murderer from the beginning, a liar from the beginning, right? He's only come to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10. Where does all that come from? Well, it comes from There he is, the the conflict. Then you have the two initial seeds, Abel and Cain. What does the first seed of the serpent do? He's a murderer. Then then the story develops. You have the seed of Abel and the seed of Cain. And Abel is a type of Christ, right? That's what Hebrew says. He says, Christ's blood speaks a better word than Abel's. Right? It's all there. It all stems from the it's 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 just amazing how it all holds together. So. The central story that drives the Bible is this conflict between man and the serpent. And the question is, whose side will God take? Where is he going to enter in this picture? And we'll come back to that and end with that. So the last thing I want to do before we totally wrap up is just talk about where humans went wrong. Um, and it takes us back to the tree of knowledge. You know, why not just give humanity the knowledge of good and evil in the first place. I mean, you created them to rule. Lord, why not just, why not just give it to them and let's get, just get past, past all this stuff? <laughs> exactly. So what he wanted them to do was to become priests before they would come become rulers. He wanted them to, to learn to minister in the temple before they would go out and subdue the earth. So allow me to explain. Again, what's the one book entirely devoted to cultivating wisdom? It's the book of Proverbs. It's all about wisdom. And according to that book, what is the beginning of wisdom? I don't want to put the book up there, but you guys know it. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's Genesis 1, 2, and 3. They were to be priests first. They were to fear the Lord, right? They were learned to serve in the temple, to worship God, to obey Him, and then they would learn to be kings. They would learn wisdom. And so that's why Proverbs says, you think all you have all this wisdom. He says the the one thing you need is to fear the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. That's where Adam and Eve went wrong. They didn't fear the Lord, and therefore their wisdom wasn't even wisdom. It was Falsehood was foolishness. And so, all this was training. You learn to worship me. You learn to grow um, in in your development. And and the law of God would have entered into their hearts, right? It would have come to determine and define their entire being. And then, they would have been given the keys and say, go take it out for a ride. It's yours. You've reached your inheritance, but (laughs) we blew it. And so, I mean, uh, there's what it means to be a human, right? We're putting these two parts of us in, these two roles that we're given, we're trying to bring them in harmony, to be priests and to be rulers, right? To fear the Lord and to grow in wisdom. So, anyway, you get this picture of humanity that needs to mature. They blow it. They try to uh, speed up the process, and they're expelled from the garden. And they're banned from ever eating the tree of life. But not all is lost. Again, remember the words. We're coming to the last section about the seed. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head. So in the ongoing struggle between the serpent and the woman, between his seed and her seed, God would enter on the side of the woman. He promised... That through the woman, that is through her seed, he would bruise, literally crush the serpent's head. Her seed is, of course, her offspring. We're getting a little ahead of the picture here, but we'll trace how the seed um, is just a central theme throughout the New Testament. God makes this initial promise, and and we're waiting for this seed to come. So, I want to read um, Peter Lightheart again. In his little article called Seeds, he says, The foundational promise is a promise of a child. In the contest of seeds, the seed of the woman will triumph over the seed of the serpent. Human destiny rests with the mother and her son. So because the woman was deceived rather than committing outright obedience like the man, she is deemed the one through whom humanity's restoration would come. First Timothy 3, she'll be saved through childbearing. So the promise is made to the serpent. You're going to have your head crushed, but it's about the woman and her seed. Another theologian, Sandra Richter, puts it this way. The woman is promised that her union with her husband will produce an heir who, in the end, will slay the one who deceived her. Even in her fallen state, it is Eve who will bring forth the Christ. And it's telling that her name is Eve. Or we call the woman Eve. That's her name. But when does she receive that name? Not before the fall, right? Adam wakes up and he says, Behold, this is woman, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He doesn't name her Eve yet. She doesn't become Eve till after this promise is given until after everything had come to destruction. Um, Let me just read that verse. Genesis 3.20, Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So the woman is not named the mother of all living because she's the bearer of children in the physical sense. If that were the case, again, then she would have been named Eve from the beginning when the mandate was given to multiply and to fill the earth. Rather, she's named the mother of all living because she's the bearer of the promise. Her seed will crush the serpent's head. Therefore, she is the mother of all living, which is why she receives her name immediately following the promise that's given. So, the world will be saved through a mother who gives birth to her son. Sound familiar? right? Sound familiar? Do we know the mother of all living? Do we know who the seed is, right? Um, so there it is, right? There's the the initial um, the initial themes of the Scripture. And you'll see how it's so cool, and everything we'll go through, they'll be picked up again and developed again and again and again and again. So I hope I've just kind of given you enough to think about, to kind of mull over in your mind so that when we come back next week, we can Really get the ball rolling now that we've kind of set the stage.